every week, uh, including today, one of our goals, if not the central goal, is to wow ourselves with Jesus all over again. Proverbs 8 is no different. And to warm us up a little bit, I'm going to read lyrics from a song that, I, that I've come to really love. It's a song called Emmanuel, and it's by a group called Beautiful Eulogy. You're going to hear a lot of the same themes that we'll talk about this morning from Proverbs 8. So just listen to this. The song goes like this. <clears throat> Lift up your eyes and see the riches of the all-sufficient king seated on his throne in glory. See his scepter that stretches the expanse of unmeasured space. Hear him who holds all things together declare, all things are mine without exception. See the curiosity of the cosmos as Christ condescends to his most cherished creatures. See the astonishment of angels as the Almighty advances toward earth. See the humility of the preexistent king born of a virgin birth. The infinite becomes infant, the maker becomes man. The divine becomes despised, and the Christ is crucified. The author of all creation cursed upon the tree that he himself spoke into being. And the Lord of life was laid in the tomb, but the grave could not contain him. And so the Son of Man was raised to life. But why? To draw near to pierce our greatest fear, to shed satisfying blood on our behalf, to give back the life we were meant to have, to enjoy, to hear, to adore, to taste, and to look with peace upon our Savior's face, and to embrace him with an undying faith, to interpose all his unworthiness into us and serve the most unworthy and undeserving. He is our God, and we are mere men made by him. We are not like him, but he loves us and moves among us. The great uncreated and the created, no longer separated. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Proverbs 8, King Solomon tells his son, God's wisdom calls to you. He calls to you even though you don't have it, even though you haven't sought it. And ultimately, as we are going to see today, the wisdom we need is more than just a concept. He's a person, the person of Jesus Christ. So follow along with me as we read Proverbs 8, 1 to 36. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gate in front of the town, at the entrance of the portal, she cries aloud. To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right. For my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold. For wisdom is better than jewels and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is a hatred of evil. Pride and arrogance in the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. 
I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule and nobles, all who govern justly. I love those who love me and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, in the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman, and I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world and delighting in the children of man. And now, O sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise, and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We're going to break down this chapter in six different sections. But as I read it, I wonder if you could somehow gather the chapter's main goal. King Solomon's writing to his son. At certain points, he's writing to all of his sons. What does he want to get his sons to do? How does he want to get them to relate to wisdom? I bet you could scan the chapter again and notice different verbs of how Solomon wants his sons to relate to wisdom. You can look at verse 6. You see the verb here. Verse 10, you see the command, take my instruction. Verse 17, you see the command, love me and seek me diligently. Verse 32, listen to me, keep my ways. This chapter, Proverbs 8, is a big case for Solomon's sons to embrace wisdom. If we were to sum it up in a main point or a main idea, we could say this. You must take hold of the wisdom Proverbs 8 holds up in order to get life. Ultimately, this means you must embrace the wisdom of God who came down in order to give his life. Now, before we look at the first section, I want to make a quick note. When we look at the wisdom of Proverbs 8, we're going to make a case that this ultimately refers to Jesus, that Jesus is the ultimate wisdom of God. Now, we'll make that case throughout our time. But for now, I think it's worth reminding that the right way to read the Bible is with Christ at the center. The Bible is not a collection of books or sayings that are unrelated and just sort of randomly stuck together. 
The Bible's books combine to form a grand narrative, a big story that builds and develops. So, for example, from the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, the Bible always directs our gaze forward. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin, God directs their gaze forward to a descendant that will crush the serpent's head. Genesis 12, with Abraham, God directs his gaze forward to one of his descendants that will bless all the nations of the earth. Deuteronomy 18, Moses directs Israel's gaze forward to a prophet that is greater than him. 2 Samuel 7, God directs King David's gaze forward to a king who will be greater than him. Isaiah 53, God directs our gaze forward to a servant who will bear the sins of his people. So that tells us, and there are more examples than this, but the Bible builds toward, culminates, and centers on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Even Jesus himself understood that this is how the Bible works. Speaking to the crowds, Jesus said in John 5, verse 39, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now we're gonna read Proverbs 8 like we read the rest of the Bible with an eye to how this points forward to Christ. And you know, the New Testament guides us how to do this well. The New Testament will tell us how to interpret the Old Testament. It will pick up themes and concepts from the Old Testament and show us how Christ fulfills them. So for our purposes today, a key verse from the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 1 verse 30. That verse says, you are in Christ who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The wisdom we need is ultimately a person, Jesus himself. Now, Solomon wants his sons to embrace wisdom, and his case begins with wisdom's call. We're looking here at verses 1 to 5. 1 to 5. Now, I wonder, does anybody here know what a Sadie's Hawkins dance is? I don't know if they still have those, but a Sadie Hawkins dance, uh, it, it, it's a twist. Like, schools have these. Instead of the guys asking the girls to the dance, the, the girls are supposed to ask the guys to the dance. It, it reverses how we think it's supposed to work. Now, when I look at wisdom's call in Proverbs 8 verse 1, I think of a Sadie Hawkins dance. Because we normally think that people are the ones who work and strive and pursue and get wisdom. That they take, the people are the ones who take the initiative. Now, Solomon does tell his son to seek wisdom later on in the chapter, but he could never seek wisdom if wisdom didn't call. His son couldn't know wisdom if wisdom didn't reveal herself. Wisdom calls. Wisdom takes the initiative. So even from the outset, it doesn't take us long to point forward to Jesus. If we are to know the true wisdom of God, who is Jesus, then for us to know Jesus and seek Jesus, Jesus must first call and reveal himself. He must take the initiative. We read Jesus saying in John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. He must take the initiative. He is the one who must call. 
Now look back at Proverbs 8, verses 1 to 5, and look at how wisdom's call is just non-ignorable. Wisdom here is like Buddy the Elf. The best way to spread wisdom's cheer is by singing loud for all to hear. Notice wisdom doesn't just raise her voice. She doesn't speak softly and tenderly like the old hymn puts it. She shouts. She does it from a place where her voice will be amplified, the heights. She stands in a very strategic place. Notice she stands at the crossroads where men have to make a decision. Either go God's way or your own way. She stands at the gates of the city. This is where everybody would congregate. And continue to verses four and five. Look at who wisdom's calling, the kind of people she's calling. Wisdom doesn't call the best and brightest. Wisdom doesn't set up her recruiting table at Harvard or Oxford or West Point or Annapolis. She calls out to the simple ones. She calls out to fools. Again, Jesus, the true wisdom of God, calls the same way wisdom does here. We have to say Jesus, the real wisdom of God, is non-ignorable. Jesus, in his life, came preaching the kingdom of God, that he would usher it in. He came preaching, really, to thousands of people. He healed people. He raised the dead. He fed 5,000. He walked on water. He did all these things, not privately, but publicly. Maybe most importantly, I know most importantly, Jesus died and rose again, not in a corner, but out in the open. And then Jesus sent his disciples not to keep it secret, but to tell the world of his death and resurrection. That's exactly what happens in the book of Acts. There are leaders in the book of Acts who tell of the disciples that the message of King Jesus has literally turned the world upside down. The real Jesus, the wisdom of God, is non-ignorable. It's still non-ignorable today. There are Christians around the world. The Bible is the most published and read book of all time. Jesus, the wisdom of God, is still calling out, intervening and redeeming lives. And just like the wisdom of God here, from the beginning, Jesus has stood at the crossroads and called, not just the best and brightest, he has called anyone. Tax collectors, prostitutes, lepers, Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free. Wisdom calls. Jesus calls. That wisdom has to call implies that we don't have it on our own. That wisdom has to get our attention implies that we think we're fine just on our own. That wisdom intervenes anyway, shows God's mercy. Now, you might be here, you're still on the fence about Jesus. My friend, this chapter is for you. This is a big, long case to embrace Jesus, the wisdom of God, and consider his mercy to you this morning, that he stands at the crossroads to make himself known to you in this place today. My brother and sister in Christ, would you reflect the mercy God has shown you in calling out to you? That God has shown you and seeking you when you didn't seek him. That Christ didn't wait for you to become wise. He came down to give us his wisdom. That Christ died for us, the Bible says, even while we were still enemies. So my, my brother and sister in Christ, when you call others to embrace Jesus by faith, 
You are an instrument of God's mercy to them. Through you, God's making known to that person what they wouldn't have known on their own. And I want you, for the rest of our time, listen to how wisdom talks to those who are on the fence. For the rest of our time, get instruction about even your evangelism. Listen to wisdom's case. Listen to wisdom's urgency. Listen to what people will find in Christ alone and nowhere else. And listen to the beauty of Christ himself. This should shape how we speak to those who are on the fence. So what does Solomon want for his son? He wants his son to embrace wisdom. The first part of his case He should do this because even though his son doesn't have wisdom, even though his son hasn't sought wisdom, wisdom has mercifully made herself known and calls to him. Now we get to the content of wisdom's call. Look with me at verses 6 to 11. We'll label these verses as wisdom's appeal. Now we can summarize her appeal in our own words. Wisdom saying, essentially, listen, I'm trustworthy. I won't lead you astray. I'll lead you in the right direction. I'll lead you better than what you're choosing to follow right now. You see, without the wisdom of God, our sense of right and wrong, and even our view of reality, will be twisted and tainted. The rest of the book talks about this. Proverbs 21:17, for example, says, Whoever loves pleasure will be a poor man. He who loves wine and oil will not be rich. You see, without the wisdom of God, we think it's just natural and good to indulge all of our pleasures. But in fact, what we don't know is when we do this, it won't gladden us, it will sadden us. Without the wisdom of God, our our morality and our reality will be twisted and tainted. Another example, Proverbs 24, 24 says, whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. Without the wisdom of God, we'll say something is right when it's actually wrong. Without the wisdom of God, we have endless ways to justify our actions. Without the wisdom of God, our view of morality and reality will be twisted and tainted. So wisdom shows up here and she says, I will tell you the truth. I will lead you in the right direction. I will lead you better than what you're choosing to follow right now. We choose to follow money. We choose to follow success. We choose to chase after security. We choose to chase after comfort. Look again at verses 10 and 11. The wisdom of God, again, who is ultimately Jesus, is better than any of these. Even the end of verse 11, more broadly, the wisdom of God is better than anything we might desire. This reminds me of Matthew 13. Jesus talks about a man who finds a treasure in a field. And he knows this treasure is incomparable. So he sells everything he has and with joy he goes to buy this treasure. Verse 10 says to take wisdom's instruction. The thing is, if you take anything else besides Jesus, the wisdom of God, you will have to give your life for it. Take the desire for money and it will consume you. Take the desire for beauty, it will crush you. Take the desire for pleasure, it will disappoint you. So this verse joins Jesus in Matthew 16, 25, implores us to give up what you've given your life to and take Jesus 
who gave his life for you. Matthew 16, 25 says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So why should Solomon's son embrace wisdom? Well, he might not find it appealing, but the wisdom of God, Jesus himself, loves you better than you love yourself. He should embrace it because what you're giving your life to will let you down. Jesus won't. Look with me at verses 12 to 17. Wisdom's case continues. These verses, she begins to unfold the kind of character she will produce in those who listen to her and embrace her. Verses 12 to 17, wisdom speaks of her own character that she produces in those who follow her. Now, throughout these verses, we get different aspects of wisdom. So we might, it might help us to define what these aspects are. Notice the, the word prudence in verse 12 means to have good sense. According to Old Testament scholar Bruce Waltke, the prudent person pays attention to a threatening situation. He gets insight into its solution. He acts on it decisively, and he thereby gains success in life while preventing failure and death. All these aspects of wisdom's character, we see another one, knowledge. That isn't just accumulating facts as much as it is knowing the truth, especially knowing the truth about God. Another aspect of wisdom's character, discretion. This is the ability to form plans. Another aspect, verse 14, wisdom has counsel. The effect of counsel that it creates in people is that they know the ropes of life. They know how life works. Another aspect, insights, meaning that you can discern between right and wrong because you see everything as God sees it. Another aspect in verse 14, strength. Not just to know the right things, but to have the strength to do the right things. These are all the aspects of wisdom. Wisdom's character, we see more of it in verse 13. Verse 13 tells us wisdom's, wisdom aligns your heart with God's heart. So that you love what God loves and you hate what God hates. Now what does God love the most? I wonder if you, how you would answer that question. What does God love the most? loves the most is his own glory. You might say, that's like egotistical and self-centered, isn't it? Well, to come back at you, what's better than God? What higher good is there? What deeper joy is there? What greater satisfaction is there? So the wisdom, these, the things that wisdom hates in verse 13 are vices that characterize rebellion against God's character. Vices like pride, arrogance, perverted speech. These are the vices that are in the hearts of those who have set themselves up as a rival to God's rightful rule. Wisdom takes the attitude of Psalm 2 to gladly bow the knee to God, the rightful king, and to take refuge in him. What is wisdom's character? Last thing real quick, verses 14 to 15, wisdom has justice. When kings can discern between right and wrong, when they are skilled to live in a way that honors God, they will rule with justice, with fairness, with equity. This is wisdom's character. Now, I don't know, if I told you the name of George Herman Ruth, would you know who that is? It's Babe Ruth. Yeah, the famous, the, probably the most famous baseball player of all time, not just a candy bar, right? So... <laughs> George Herman Ruth grew up in uh, an orphanage in Baltimore, Maryland. 
So that means he didn't have access to travel baseball teams. He didn't have coaches. He didn't have baseball classes. The greatest baseball player of all time, he simply modeled his swing after the best baseball player he saw, Shoeless Joe Jackson. It tells us that some things can't just be taught. They also have to be caught. Wisdom is not just a series of concepts and definitions. Wisdom took on flesh and bones in the person of Jesus Christ. So if you want to know the character wisdom develops, don't just define terms. Look to Christ's life and Christ's heart. Take his invitation in Matthew 11. He invites us, learn of me. If you want to make wise choices, if you want to have wise priorities, look at Jesus's choices. Look at Jesus's priorities. If you want to see the one whose heart is perfectly aligned with God's heart, look at Jesus, the wisdom of God. If you want to see one who has justice, who honors the poor and the widow, who shows no favoritism to the powerful, look at Jesus, the wisdom of God. If you want to catch true greatness, true strength, see the one who set his face to the cross. See the one who became weak, who was despised and rejected, all to serve and save his people. And if you want to see wisdom in the flesh, look at no other place than King Jesus, the Son of God. And my friend, if you want to display Jesus's same wise character, you can't simply follow his advice. You can't just apply his words to the surface. Look at verse 17. You have to take them in your heart. If you want to be like Jesus, you can't just casually admire Jesus. You must love Jesus. Your heart must be captured for him, captivated by him. Remember what Jesus said in John 15 about how we display a godly, wise character. He says, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you claim to follow Jesus, but don't show his character, it might be because you haven't truly embraced him by faith. It might be because you haven't really submitted your life to him. If you try to display Jesus's character without embracing Jesus himself, you'll be like the person who staples fruit onto a tree. There's no life to support it. You will have to fake it. And like stapled fruit, it'll be obvious that you have to fake it. Embrace Jesus, the wisdom of God. Abide in his heart and in his teachings. And watch as he produces the fruit of his character in your life. So why should we embrace wisdom? Remember, this is a long case for Solomon's son to embrace wisdom. Well, so far we've said we should embrace it because wisdom mercifully calls to us. Wisdom won't lead us astray. Wisdom produces the character that's unnatural to us. In verses 18 to 21, embracing wisdom leads to reward. Now, I want to approach these verses carefully. Remember the verse that came right before verse 18. It's verse 17. Christ, the wisdom of God, should be the beat of our hearts. 
our greatest treasure, our deepest satisfaction, our most focused pursuit. Verse 17 colors how we should read verses 18 to 21. Verse 17 establishes, I'm chasing after Jesus, not money. I'm resting and rejoicing in Jesus, not my bank account. Jesus is my own reward. I love him for who he is, not just the stuff he gives me. When that is your heart, when you have enduring wealth. That's what verse 18 says. And it's interesting because when the Bible talks about money, it, it talks about something that can be a good gift, but it's a temporary gift. When the Bible talks about money, it talks about something that can be a good gift, but even a dangerous gift. It's dangerous to bank your hope on your bank account because it's fleeting. It's fading. It's temporary. You can't take it with you. My friend, even if your approach to it is just, I want to leave behind a great legacy for behind me, well, that's okay. But if that's all there is, my friend, even two generations later, you're going to be forgotten. I mean, how many of us know our great, great, great grandparents? And not just beyond that, even if you are remembered, if this is all there is, well, one day the sun's going to burn up the earth. And all of our earthly goods and treasures will be gone. So what this is saying here, embrace the one who endures. Who stands above death because he conquered it. The inheritance that Jesus gives to those who have embraced him by faith is better than money. Ultimately, that inheritance is Jesus himself. Proverbs 8 talks about it, verse 19. The substance of the inheritance is is not gold. It says it's better than gold. It's better than silver. Skip ahead to verse 35. It gets even more specific. What is the inheritance for those who have embraced Christ, the wisdom of God? It's life. It's favor from God himself. In other words, it's the smile of God. My friend, don't believe any preaching or teaching that tells you to use Jesus to get money. That makes a God out of the reward, not out of the giver. Listen to the words of Jesus from Matthew 6. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus also says, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Why should we embrace Jesus, the wisdom of God? Well, because he gives a lasting inheritance. As Ephesians 1 says, he gives every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now, the case to embrace wisdom takes us to loftier heights in verses 22 to 31. To be more precise, it takes us back before everything began. Verse 23, before the beginning of the earth, when wisdom takes us on a tour from the deepest depths to the highest heights, the wisdom by which God made the world is offered to us. Verses 22 to 31 is one big argument of the greater to the lesser. It's basically saying, if God didn't do anything without wisdom, neither should you do anything without wisdom. The New Testament alludes to this section of this chapter in places like John chapter 1, 
or Colossians chapter 1. We read that earlier. So think of Proverbs 8 like the shadow and those sections of the New Testament like the substance of that shadow. From Proverbs 8, the Bible crescendos. It gets louder to show us that the wisdom by which God made the universe took on flesh and became human. How amazing is that? From this point, the Bible gets clearer that the wisdom, this wisdom here is not just an impersonal concept. The wisdom here is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son of God, equal in substance and eternality as God the Father. Now, for all that clear picture, some people can read Proverbs 8 as a case that God made or created wisdom. Therefore, some people read Proverbs 8 as a case that Jesus is a created being. Now, this might get a little technical here, but just bear with me for a moment because it's important. Now, if, you, if we made that conclusion from this chapter, not only would we go against the rest of the Bible's testimony about Jesus, but we would go against this passage as well. Notice verse 22, that word possessed. It's translated that way deliberately. This word can also be translated as created. But you see, the context should shed light on what the author intends. But just think about the logic of this. If God had to create wisdom, then that would imply at one time God didn't have wisdom. So then the word here implies parenthood, not creation. Wisdom has always belonged to God as a son. That's why we call Jesus the eternal, begotten, not made, begotten son of God. Now that's more of the heady explanation. But you read verses 22 to 31, you should ask the same question you ask when you come to any part of the Bible. You should ask, why is this here? What's the purpose of this? Well, the eternality of Jesus, the wisdom of God, means that Jesus is preeminent. That he is above all things. That he has no rival. That he is incomparable. No one and nothing like him. This is here to tell you that the wisdom you need to embrace is not a man-made philosophy. It's not a self-help strategy. It's not a secular ideology. The wisdom you need to embrace is Christ the agent of creation, the wisdom of God incarnate. Look at verses 30 to 31. That Jesus has always existed, that he is the agent of creation, means he knows how everything is supposed to work. He knows the harmonious and joyful way creation was intended to work. You see, Jesus is the wisdom through whom God made the world. But Jesus is also the wisdom through whom God will remake the world. Jesus took on flesh to reconcile us to God by the blood of his cross. And he, he is making us new and he will make all things new and restore the joy that was interrupted by sin. You see, everybody longs for a better, more joyful world. But people hope in progress, people hope in programs, people hope in people to bring about the better, more joyful world. We say here, ultimately, our hope is in Jesus to do that. The wisdom through whom God made creation and the wisdom through whom God will remake creation. My friend, if, if Jesus is this powerful, 
Don't you think he can restore and recreate your own life? Would you bring your mess to Jesus and be reconciled to God through the blood of his cross? And then begin to experience the joy of being made new in Christ. I will not promise you that this makes life easy, but I will promise you it will enliven you with a sustained hope and delight in the God who made you and saved you. So why embrace wisdom? Well, in this 22 to 31, God himself considers wisdom indispensable. He did nothing without it. Ultimately, this means that he did nothing without Christ, his son. Why embrace wisdom? Because Jesus is the one who will restore the joy we were intended to have. Now we come finally to verses 32 to 36. We end similarly to how we began Here, these verses are a call to listen, a call to hear, a call to keep. What it amounts to really is a call to embrace wholeheartedly. This is wisdom's final warning and invitation. And again, if if it's the wisdom of God, if that's what gives us life, if that's what gives us favor from God, then it must mean that wisdom is more than just a concept. You see, if wisdom was just a concept we had to learn, then there's no way we could master it well enough in order to get life. If wisdom was just a concept, then there's no way we could live up to its demands in order to get favor from the Lord. But the good news is that wisdom isn't just a concept. He's a person. Jesus lived the wise life we didn't live. And Jesus died in our place so that all who would embrace him by faith would have the smile of God. Listen to Jesus in John 10. He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now, by the end of this chapter, we see how urgent the call to embrace wisdom is. This is not a pitch from a used car salesman. Proverbs 8 isn't trying to get you to buy a warranty on life that you don't really need. The call to embrace Jesus, the wisdom of God, is not an optional add-on that upgrades your already decent life. It is essential to life itself. Apart from a wholehearted embrace of Christ, there is no life. Apart from a wholehearted embrace of Christ, each one of us stands justly condemned for our foolish sinfulness, before the creator of the universe. Listen to the stark black and white terms of 1 John 5, 12. It says, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. My friend, do you have the son of God? If you're not sure, would you talk to me or someone here today? If you have the Son of God, do you enjoy the Son of God? I'll close by quoting Pastor Ray Ortland. He says this on this section. The irony is, if you protect yourself from Christ, you injure yourself. Look again at verse 36. He who fails to find me injures himself. You see, Christ loves you more than you love yourself. And you can have Christ, 
not by heroic intellectual pursuit, but by humbly admitting the truth that you are a fool who needs a sage. If you are a fool, then you are the one he loves and the one he calls to. Will you listen and take him? Will you embrace the wisdom of God? Come down. Let's pray.